0: The Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, or CJCC, is looking to reduce inmate populations, but in a way that takes the the safety of the community into consideration.
1: Meet Jennifer Johnson. Together we serve as co-vice chairs for the Anderson County CJCC, and have done so since 2018
0: we are looking at alternatives to pretrial incarceration alternatives to conviction and ultimately with an eye to addressing some of the underlying problems in the criminal justice system
1: welcome to intersection i am bobby ratu storyteller
0: my name is jennifer johnson i am the 10th circuit public defender I have been in this position for a little over three years now, but I have been a public defender for more than 21 years. I guess recidivism in in my mind is how likely are we to see this person arrested again before we have our initial representation concluded, which is a different Definition of recidivism. I think most people think you know post-sentence release. Um, with the work that I do in my office, we you know once once a person is is sentenced, that really terminates the relationship between the between the client and my office. So I look at recidivism as to how it impacts pre-trial detention, um, how it impacts a person's ability to make bail, um, and our decisions regarding you know, who, who, who gets bail and, and who doesn't. Um, I don't know that my perspective has changed on that since we formed the CJCC. But one thing I think that became clear very early in the formation is, um, our need to collect data, um, so that we can understand what drives certain trends with rearrest and recidivism. Um, I know just from looking at national information that's available regarding uh, pretrial detention, that detention of even as little as 48 hours has a huge negative impact on the person being detained and increases their likelihood of being rearrested. So I think gathering that data as it is specific to Anderson County so that we can drill down and understand what what's driving a rearrest. arrest um, Is it uh, that someone spent so long in detention prior to release that upon release, they don't have adequate supports to address lacking transportation, housing, employment, job training, job skills, education, uh, Homelessness, potentially. I mean, there's there's a host of of um, areas that the my clients who, again, are are indigent um, deal with when they're released from incarceration. Um, And so what what is it that we can do to reduce the chances of someone reoffending? I mean,
1: ultimately, that's as a community what what we all want. Let's talk about the first sets of data that we started looking at what was the initial benchmarks that we were assessing as we started to meet early?
0: I think initially, and of course, Casey Collins, who is our executive director would, would probably be a much better position to answer exactly what we have looked at. But um, we are looking, you know, one at just simply who is coming into the detention center, you know, what, what, do these people look like from a demographic basis? What are the charges? Um, just you know, very initial, um, and I don't want to say superficial because I think all the information is important, but um, sort of initial booking data. Um, we have started looking at, um, and we, we've had mental health screening available now for, I believe, right at a year.
1: Because of the CJCC.
0: Yes, um, which was an initiative of the CJCC, and Anderson County government has, has shown a, a commitment to this, um, but screening people who are booked into the detention center for mental health um, diagnoses um, or conditions or disorders. And again, it's just one component of understanding what someone is struggling with and how that might might impact rearrest or conditions of release pertinent to that individual
1: so it's almost like we've looked at number one the demographics of the individuals that are brought into the jail right yes the second is the actual jail population the daily what we say daily population um,
0: yes i mean we're we're all evaluating what our average daily population is Um, that's a number uh, again going back to the sort of underpinnings of of why this group was was formed you know we we have a jail that was originally built in 1956 i believe it was Um, it has been expanded in in a a few different models over the years there was a a women's uh, facility added um i think most recently but even that's been some time ago but we have a facility with an operational capacity of 196 inmates, and routinely, at least until the pandemic, has, has changed things a little bit for us, but, um, but routinely houses more than 400 people on an average daily basis.
1: And let me ask you an interesting question that we have been pondering. You and I have talked about a lot. Uh, Casey, many people have had this conversation. When we look at recidivism, does the idea of recidivism ex- naturally equate to the conversation of population numbers? Are we Is that a one-to-one conversation? Has it been a more complex than just saying, well, we're really dropping the population by 30%, and that's a really good goal, and thus we're really attacking recidivism? When you hear that in these conversations that we had, how do you react to that? And how is this such a broader conversation?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that that rings true to me. I think you always have to be very careful when to not conflate causation and correlation. Um, and I think that's where collecting the data that, that we are trying to collect through the CJCC to understand what Because you can see trends and trends are one thing, but again, I think you have to, you have to use caution to not equate a, a trend with something that is actually supported by data. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that we're probably lacking at this point is, is the ability to follow up with people as they are released from detention, um, because I would suspect that now our only mechanism of following up is if they are rearrested and brought back into the Anderson County Detention Center. I don't think we're capturing people who are, you know, released on bond and come to court um, as they're supposed to. It, it's, it's harder to identify what happens to uh, those individuals as, um, as, as they're released on bail.
1: But would you say with that, the last conversation that I had was with our friend Michael Cunningham, who is mm-hmm. over at AmEd Health. Yes. And in that conversation, we talked a lot about it's more about readmission rates as opposed to recidivism in his terminology. Mm-hmm. And also, we've talked about that cycle between the hospital and the jail and the community, and right. And, and, and that's a big part of this conversation. Absolutely. From the jail perspective and maybe even the public defender's perspective, when we start looking at data in this area, it's almost start – we start looking at, okay, let's look at the number of days they've stayed in. Is Mm -hmm. it 30 days, 60 days? I mean, heck, we've had inmates in there for, what, 360 days, more.
0: Oh, more. Or more.
1: And then it's not only just those number of days that they've stayed because they're waiting for trial – they're waiting for all whatever their specific situation may be, but also the type of offenses that are more prevalent in these individuals that have been in there for a long period of time. Talk about what we have seen from a length of stay standpoint from your perspective, and then we'll talk about after that the type of charges that are the ones that typically we're seeing as the highest number but are repeat offenders as well?
0: okay, and and without having data sets in front of me, right. I, I wouldn't yeah, you know, I wouldn't, right. wouldn't want to say with specificity, but just from my interaction with the CJCC and of course, in my in my position as as head of the office, the people who stay the longest pretrial detention tend to fall into one of two categories, um, category number one. And I think this would capture most of them are people with very serious charges. Uh, the more serious, the charge, the more complicated, the case, the longer it takes to get someone to court. Um, right. You know, it, it's, I mean, that, that's just the, the nature of, of the beast. So, you know, people charged with murder or A, B or C felony. So basically anything carrying 20 years or more, um, it, it simply takes more time with the more serious the charge and the more complex the case. Um, the second thing is we, we do occasionally have people who, get, um, th- who end up staying longer because of their mental health status, and I, I can explain that further. So one of the things that uh, we as, as attorneys look for is, you know, we deal with a lot of people who have some kind of diagnosed mental illness, but most of, most of them are competent to stand trial. But we do have a number of individuals who are simply not competent. Um, they're not competent to assist their counsel in their defense. They're not competent to understand the nature of the charges against them. They're not competent to understand the nature of the court proceedings and the roles of the people within that court system. And those individuals you know, typically are evaluated at the state department of mental health in columbia um and that can be a time consuming process um you know, sometimes clients cooperate with that sometimes they don't um you know there are times when someone is initially found to be not competent but the state thinks that after a 60 day admission um, that they might become competent. So you you have some of those um, inmates who are dealing with competency issues who might stay longer, even on perhaps a less serious offense, just because you know that that's a process that simply takes time.
1: But also, we're also seeing the funnel or the increase amount of individuals that are inside the jail, regardless of the amount of time that they spend, but they're coming back and back and back based on very simple charges, too, as well. And that's right. and to your point, and we've always had this conversation, is the perception is, oh, we're going to arrest all these people, we're going to take care of them, we're going to get them off the streets, and then we're going to throw them in a jail. But when the funnel, from a prosecutorial standpoint and a court standpoint— the funnel is logged up, and because it's blogged up, it's hard to keep people moving through that jail. Right. Um, what and, are the challenges that you face in your office as it relates to this that you feel comfortable sharing?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, well, there's a number of challenges, and mo- most of them um, I-, I can address first from just generally the criminal justice system Um you know we we have a system of state courts where we handle uh, general sessions or larger criminal charges. Um, and of course, our 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 circuit court judges um, are state employees, and their schedules are set by state court administration. And I've practiced here in Anderson since, oh goodness, 2002. And I would say that the amount of court time that we have is pretty similar now in two thousand twenty, but one thing that's happened during that time frame is the number of warrants or cases that are coming into the system has increased year after year after year. I think part of that is driven by population I don't really um i i I, I don't believe that this is an indication that we are somehow um Seeing a worsening crime rate. I I think a lot of it's a function of of population and larger um, police departments um, and, you know, more simply more arrests, more charges. Um, But as as more than one person and you being one of them has heard me use the analogy um, of, you know, I hate to equate the criminal justice system with a sausage making factory. But if you think of it that way, our, our production has not our production capacity has not increased during the last two decades, yet the number that we're expected to process has. Um, it, it's a, and, and that's just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a function of, of the system that we operate in. And So what, what happens when you have um, your funnel analogy, when you've got more people going through the same size funnel, it just it lengthens the time between when someone is arrested and when they can realistically expect to go to court. And, and, and again, that's not you know, laying fault at anyone's at anyone's feet. It's just a, a matter of logistics. From my office's perspective, we have a lot of a lot of people who we are representing at any one time. Um, our caseloads are Excessive. And you know, at the same time, the the evidence in any given case has become more complex or has become greater. I mean, the the use of body cameras and police agencies it, it is a good thing for the system, but it's one more piece of evidence that we have to review in, in part of preparing the case for trial or other disposition. The nature of evidence has become more complex with scientific testing. And those are things that when you have a handful of people who are responsible for reviewing all of that material, it can be difficult to stay on top of all of the developments in every case at every minute of every day.
1: So with that, you know, we start looking at that funnel and the funnel's hard. You know, we walk into typically we have monthly meetings, but right now it's been paused because of this COVID pandemic. Um, We look at a couple pieces of benchmark data. We look at population, you know, that daily population within this month, the average. We look at, you know, the typical risk categories. We talk about issues related to things that we're progressing on, like uh, this crisis stabilization unit, the mental health court. There's so many different things that we're working on. From your perspective as the public defender, what does success look like? What lets you know that we're making progress?
0: Well, on on a fundamental level, reducing the average daily population and reducing the average length of stay before court. Um, And and we are doing those things. So I I, I think we are definitely seeing success in – um, how we are approaching this. Some of the things you mentioned, mental health court, crisis stabilization, um, those are components of directing people outside of the court system, which I think is going to be a, a critical piece to, to addressing both client needs, but also the recidivism piece. Um, when you talk about a mental health court, um and having the ability to, to follow and monitor someone closely um, to help them, you know, with community resources, to help them with medications, um, and really ultimately address the underlying problems, you have a real opportunity to get someone out of the cycle of arrest, you know, incarceration, sentence and do it all over again. After all, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. Um, and I think that that becomes, that's, that's a challenge for me on a daily basis. I've been in, I've worked in the criminal justice system for a very long time. And um, there have certainly been improvements in that system during the time that I've been a public defender. Um, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, and I think that some of these diversionary courts, um, crisis stabilization, so I guess it would probably be helpful to explain what we're talking about there. Crisis stabilization would be a program by which if law enforcement came into contact with someone who was either struggling with addiction or mental health issues, they would have the option to take them to a crisis stabilization unit as opposed to going to the emergency room for treatment or to the jail for detention. And I, right now we have fairly limited options. Um, you know, it's the, the emergency room or, or the jail. Uh, frankly, neither of those entities are well equipped to handle addiction or mental health problems on an ongoing basis. You know, they they're, they're For for acute needs, sure, but not, you know, ultimately to get someone stabilized, as the name suggests, to identify what the underlying problems are, what resources we need to connect them with. I think those are ultimately things that drive people out of the system and keep them out of the system, hopefully.
1: When we talk about reducing time inside of a jail system, specifically the Anderson County Jail, which is old as dirt. It is so. It really is. I mean, you know, even the jail directors will just take you on a tour and show you how old it is, and how overpopulated it is, and how scary the situation is. And and
0: I was actually going to suggest that. I'm glad you brought that up. That I I have done, and I think most, if not all, of the members of the executive board of the um, CJCC have. Toured the detention facility. Director Matheson did the tour that that I went on, and it is eye-opening to see. I mean, and this is a facility that I'm I'm as a lawyer, I'm in this facility quite frequently. Um, but to see the full facility and what they are dealing with in terms of uh, protecting inmates and protecting the people who work there, and providing safe conditions for for everyone, it, it, it's very eye-opening. I would certainly encourage anyone who is who is listening to this and, and interested in anything about our local criminal justice system to, to do, to call, call the jail and and take the tour. Um, it's It's enlightening.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation surrounding recidivism in Anderson County CJCC. Interested to learn more? Check out the show notes to learn more about Anderson County CJCC. For more information about our show or other episodes, go to intersectionpodcast.com. That is intersectionpodcast.com. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.